0: Let's open up our Bibles. Uh, we are in 1 Samuel, chapter 15. Actually, we'll pick up at the end of chapter 14, where we left off on Sunday. As I was praying a few minutes ago, I made the comment that we make it harder than it is. We are all trying so hard to figure out this faith thing. And you know the, the downside of being 2,000 years down the line from Jesus is we have 2,000 years working against us, right? Of traditions and religious ideas and concepts you know, that, that people have built up and, and sometimes, in some of our lives, we gotta extricate ourselves from that stuff and just get back to the simplicity of the scriptures and praying to the Lord himself because you know, we can go direct. But we overcomplicate things, and and I'm reminded of this because the last several teachings we've done through Samuel, we've been talking about some heavy-duty things, intercessory prayer. We've been talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And as we go through these things, what, what I've noticed is they're tending to raise more questions. People are saying, okay, I hear you say I have an anointing and I'm supposed to know, but I don't know. And again, we complicate things. We make it harder than it is. Jesus is looking for a relationship with you. Jesus wants you to talk to him, to reach out to him, and the first person you go to when you're confused or unsure or trying to figure something out with regards to faith or the scriptures or walking with him is you go to him. You can very simply say, Jesus, I don't get this. And Lord, help me understand And if there's some particular aspect of faith, something maybe that's taught on in a Bible study or in a small group, and you hear it and you go, man, I just don't get that. The first place to go is Jesus. Lord, would you help me understand this? Because it's his heart's desire that you do. And then go to his word and stay persistent with that. It it is much more simple sometimes than we make it. Now, uh, with that in mind, I'm gonna get a little complex and theological on you tonight uh, as we move through 1 Samuel 15. But I'm gonna do it for a reason, and I, I, I'm gonna hopefully by breaking this down, this will will help. Um, but we're gonna begin with a crash course on human nature, and it's a one verse crash course, a one verse crash course on human nature where the Apostle Paul puts it all together so simply and so uh, profoundly at the same time. One verse, First Thessalonians five twenty three, which says, "Now may the God of peace himself." sanctify you entirely, entirely. What does that mean? Okay, crash course on human nature. So here it is, human nature. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sums up better than anything I've heard, human nature. What is human nature? Spirit, soul, and body. That's who you are. As what we all have. While praying for complete sanctification or the completion of sanctification, Paul describes the composition of human beings, the body. The body is corporal, physical, natural, and it is where we make contact with matter and the material world, right? So it's our physical selves. It's what you're looking at moving around up here, but that's not me. That's not me. It's part of me, but... That's the body. The second part is the soul. And you gotta be clear on this because the scriptures are. The scriptures are. The soul is the meeting place of spirit and body. Think of the soul as being in the middle, as being kind of the communication center. It is the mind. It is the seat of reason and, and intellect and emotion. But the soul, what well, I'm gonna say all through tonight, the soul man, The soul man is where I work things out. It's where I influence others. It's where I reason my way through this world. So there's the body, which is corporal and physical and natural. There's the soul, which is that midpoint. It's the the mind, you might say. And then there's the spirit. And the spirit is our best aspect. Okay, the the spirit, I like to say the spirit is our eternal nature, but once we have been caught up and changed, we will actually be caught up body, soul, and spirit. You're not leaving the carcass behind, you know, in the rapture of the church, and you're not leaving the soul behind because, as Paul said, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Now, again, I always need to clarify this. That doesn't mean that if your body's all broken down and messed up that that's what you're stuck with for eternity. It's going to be glorified. So the body is going to be made perfect and glorified. The soul is going to be caught up. The spirit, now the spirit is our innermost being. So when we talk about the spiritual man, the spiritual woman versus the natural or, or, or the, the physical or corporal, corporal man or woman, the spirit is where we worship, it's where we pray, and it is where we are in communion and communication with God. Spirit is where we communicate with God. Soul is that middle ground, and then body is the flesh. This is why Jesus said God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Now, if you really wanna get into the weeds on this thing and dig in and try to understand spirit, soul, and body, especially from a very biblical teaching perspective, I would encourage you to pick up a book. It's a thick book, it's got three parts to it, called The Spiritual Man by Watchman Nee, N-E-E, Watchman Nee. Uh, It is a seminal book that discusses this. What I love about the book, it is packed with scripture. Everything he says, he backs it up. And and it is a very biblical approach to understanding our nature. And and hopefully by understanding our nature, we'll understand a little bit better how we function and, and how we do this thing that we call faith. Spirit, soul, and body, and Watchman Nee says the Bible, and he's true, this is right, I've checked it, the Bible never confuses spirit and soul as if they're the same thing. We do that, we do that, you know, we talk about body and soul and we stop right there. No, we are body, soul, and spirit, and soul and spirit are not the same thing. They are not the same. Again, the soul is that middle ground. You'll understand that more here in a moment. Watchman Nee also says, well, before that, the book of Hebrews, think about this. Chapter four, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Right, so soul and spirit are different right there. The Bible declares that. And then it goes on to say, it also divides from joints and marrow. That's the body. So the Hebrew pastor, without consulting with Paul, talks about spirit, soul, and body, talking about how the word is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And then Watchman Nee, he says this. Of these three elements, the spirit is noblest. It joins with God. The body is lowest for it contacts with matter. The soul lying between them joins the two together and also takes their character, note this, takes their character to be its own. So the soul is either going to take on the characteristics or character traits of the body or the soul's gonna take on the characteristics or character traits of the spirit. The spiritual person Is allowing then their spirit to affect their soul in the way they think and reason, which then affects the body in how they behave. The carnal person is allowing the body to run the way they think and it pretty much uh, subjugates the spirit. All right? He says the soul makes it possible for the spirit and the body to communicate and to cooperate. Now, these are my words, not watchman knees, but either spirit will control soul subjugating the body resulting in the fruit of the spirit in our lives or the body will control the soul subduing the spirit resulting in the deeds of the flesh. And, and it's really easy to break down deeds of the flesh versus fruit of the spirit because Paul does that. Galatians chapter five, verses 19 through 23, he talks about the deeds of the flesh. He talks about the, the, uh, the work of the spirit or the fruit of the spirit. And I, I would advise you to check that out. It's a great place also to go to think about how we function as followers of Jesus, spirit, soul, and body. Paul describes those, I won't go into those tonight, I don't have time, but I will jump over to Romans chapter eight, and you can turn there quickly or just listen up, Romans chapter eight, which is another one of these passages that speaks so much to who we are as human beings, but more so, who we are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter eight, verse five, now listen to this closely. For those who are according to the flesh, we could say the body, the corporal, Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. What are the things of the flesh? What the flesh wants, the the, the base things. Um, I could give you a list, but again, look at the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter five. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit or live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That is, we think about, we process, we meditate on, we pray about the things of the Spirit. We make that our focus, and we are then more spiritual. He goes on to say, for the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, it is not even able to do so. Why are people so hostile toward Jesus or toward the Lord God? Because their minds are set on the flesh. It's a very simple truism. He goes on and says, The mindset on the flesh, I said that is hostile toward God. Those who are in the flesh, he says, verse 8, cannot please God. However, you are not. In the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit, these are the sons of of God. Now you can think more through that in Romans chapter eight as well, but the bottom line is this, the spiritual man, the spiritual woman led by the Holy Spirit is simply the person who's pursuing God. You wanna know God, you wanna understand God, you talk to him, you pray, you're in his word, you consider and think about him like you're doing right now. That is a very spiritual move on your part tonight, so well done. The spiritual man led by the spirit, the spiritual woman pursues God. And the ideal example, the one we can look at above all others is Jesus. Because Jesus, the Word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us is also man among us, shows us exactly what it's like to be the spiritual person. Someone asked Jake uh, this last week, um, Jake, How do I take on the image of Christ? What does that mean? It's it's being Christ-like. It means that you're pursuing him, that you're, you're determining, you're wanting your behavior to be like his. How can you make your behavior like his? Well, you ask him, and you consider him. You look at him. You emulate him. You pattern yourself after him. This is the way the spirit affects the mind or the soul. I could go on and on about this. The carnal man is like an instinctive animal. So the truly carnal person, the body person, is driven by the lust and the desire of the flesh. So an example, while we have the example of Jesus, the perfect example of the spiritual man, we have the example of the men of Sodom in Genesis 19 as the perfect example of the carnal man. You could also look at the men of Gebeah, which we studied recently in Judges 19. They do almost the exact same thing as the men of Sodom in Genesis 19. These are both pictures in the scriptures of the carnal person who is driven by the lust and desires of the flesh. What about soul man? And this is where we're gonna spend our time tonight because there's the spirit and there's the body and there's the soul. By the way, one more thing on this. While spirit is our highest aspect, it doesn't mean soul's bad. And it doesn't even mean that body is bad. A good piece of chocolate cake, I'm in, okay? As I said to staff today, eating the entire cake at once probably is a little lusty. Maybe that's overdoing it a bit, you know? Um, it, it, it's, body is not bad, God has given us our physical selves. So it's not that body is inherently bad, but when the body, when the flesh, when the carnal man or woman is in control, now you're in trouble. So it really depends on what are you listening to? Are you listening to the flesh or are you listening to the spirit? But in between flesh and spirit is the soul man. The soul man. Dean's been listening to this song all day long, he tells me. Soul man. So what is that and what does that mean? The soul man is the person who fools himself, the soul woman fools herself into thinking he or she is in control. I got this. I'm handling it, I'm processing it, I'm thinking it through, I'm working it out. Saul is a soul man. And probably the best way to explain the soul man is just have you watch Saul as we begin picking up in 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 47. Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against his, all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the, the kings of Zobah, the Philistines, and wherever he went, or wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. That's a soul man. Listen to the language. It goes on in verse 48, and says, he acted valiantly, There's a different translation for that word. And defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Okay, so in verse 47, it says he inflicted punishment. That's the word yartziah in Hebrew, and it translates to to condemn, to to look at with condemnation, to, to take down. So inflicted punishment actually is a very good translation of that word. Wherever he went, wherever he turned. So he, just, he didn't just defeat the Moabites, he punished them. He didn't just defeat the sons of, uh, of the Edomites, he inflicted pain and punishment upon them. But then in the next verse, but it says he acted valiantly. Okay, the word valiantly is chayil, and it doesn't mean bravely, it means forcefully. So this guy is on a rampage. Now, I want you to understand, I don't think Saul was inherently evil, but he's a soul man, and he's doing what he thinks he should be doing. Rather than listening to the spirit, and this will be born true through the chapter tonight, rather than being spiritually focused, he is physically focused. The body is taking charge of the soul, and this soul man is functioning out of his head rather than out of his heart. From a biblical, spiritual basis to function out of your head rather than out of your heart means to be functioning in the soul, not the spirit. And that is Saul. Look at verse 49. Now the sons of Shaul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger was Michal. Michal's going to have a part to play later on in this, uh, so we'll... Jonathan, the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the captain of his army, I like this, was Abner, the son of Ner. Makes it easy. Abner, son of Ner. Ab means uh, father, right, Abba, Ab. So Abba, Ner, uh, Ner is my dad. That was, <laughs> that was his name. I would be, um, be Ab-Bob. That would be, because Bob was my dad. So Abner. Okay, uh, Akish was the father of Shaul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now, the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached himself and took his, uh, attached him to his staff. Literally, he took him to himself. This is a, a fulfillment, a direct fulfillment of the Lord's warning of a king like the nations. You remember this, the procedure of the kings. Back in chapter eight, verse 11, he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen and they will run before his chariots and Saul is already doing this. He's already taking these people. Any time he sees someone of strength, of talent or ability, this is what the soul man does, he surrounds himself with people who he can put to work and who he can make serve his interests. The profile of Saul, so far in our studies, the profile of Saul shows a man who began very insecure. Remember when they were looking to anoint him and crown him king, they couldn't find him and and they said, Lord, where is he? And the Lord said, he's hiding in the baggage. This is an insecure man. This is a man who doesn't think very highly of himself, but it's not humility, it's insecurity the danger is that insecurity quickly translates into arrogance and that often happens that is something very typical in human nature if someone is insecure and they end up getting a shot or an opportunity they become arrogant because you got to you got to cover the insecurity Rather than moving from insecurity into humility, oftentimes we will see, especially a soul man, move from insecurity into arrogance, and then from insecurity to arrogance, we're gonna see, Paul, or see Saul get hard-hearted. Again, not an intentionally evil man, so to speak, but a soul man, and the soul always gives way to the flesh. Ultimately, Saul is going to lose it mentally, soulishly, and we'll see that the soul never really was in control after all. It never is. And guys, we had an interesting conversation earlier today. This is tough for men because the way this plays out for us is we want to fix things. We want to be practical and we want to do things. We want to work the problem, that's the soul man. And it's really tough for a man to function spiritually because we're so used to and we're so trained in this culture, in Western culture really, we're trained to work the problem. We're trained to function in the soul, not the spirit. This is why you keep seeing commands throughout the scriptures, like like Paul saying to Timothy, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. I want men to be shepherds. I want men stepping into these roles, why? Because men need the emphasis of the spiritual because we are naturally gonna go for the soul. Women in in, in the soul side of things, and I am talking in generalities, so don't shoot me any nasty emails, you know. But women are going to tend, the the, the way you see the soul woman is emotion. You're gonna see more emotion in play, and more emotion that is driving decision. Not necessarily bad emotion, by the way, any more than practicality is, is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But if we're living in that place, men trying to figure it out, women emoting, and these two things are both the region of the soul. This ends up being a major problem in Saul's life. Chapter 15, verse one, then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him and put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. This is a very problematic chapter in multiple places and we're gonna look at them all. But right out of the gate, this this is tough. This is tough. But before we get to the tough command that he is supposed to exterminate the Amalekites, that's what God is calling for. Before we get there and think about that, wasn't Saul's kingdom already forfeit? Didn't we already read that, that the Lord said, you know what? I am taking the kingdom from Saul. I'm gonna give it to another, a man after my own heart. Why is Samuel now coming to Saul and saying, uh, do this, you gotta do this, take care of this. This is a situation, and in my opinion, Samuel is appealing to Saul's anointing even when that anointing is lost, okay? Because Saul is, or Samuel's holding out hope for Saul. Samuel, as a spiritual man, and by the way, there are few as spiritual as Samuel in the Bible, Samuel is hopeful. Samuel is compassionate. Samuel is still trying to help Saul move out of the soul and into the spirit. And in so doing, he says, hey, here's a command that you can fulfill. By the way, fulfilling the commands of God, that is one of the ways that we walk in the spirit. More on that in a moment. But 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen tells us Now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. But here's a command that Saul can keep. And I'm reading into Samuel a bit, but I think Samuel's thinking, Saul, if you can can keep commandments, if you can start obeying the Lord, maybe there's hope for you. Maybe we can turn this around. And so here's an ancient command that can call the soul man back to God who is spirit and maybe lead him in a more spiritual direction. So here's the command, wipe out the Amalekites. That's tough. Where's the command come from? This is a fulfillment of God's word that was spoken, listen to me, 400 years before. This is an old command prophecy and it's all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17 where the Lord through Moses says remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt how he met you along the way and attacked you among or attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not Fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. (laughs) I love the language. Don't forget to blot out the memory. Remember to forget this, people or to cause this people to be forgotten. Now, it's interesting because in the prophecy, he says, when, all, when you have rest on every side, do this. Well, right now, in the life of Saul, they don't have rest on every side. They will fight the Philistines. They're his entire rule. This is gonna be a problem. Philistines won't be taken out until the kingdom of David. So they don't really have rest on every side, and that's part of the reason I say, I think Samuel is saying, Saul, do this. This is an ancient prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Take out the Amalekites right now. We can get you realigned. We can get you back on the right footing with the Lord if you will keep his commandment. Again, what is the commandment? Wipe out the Amalekites. Men, women, children, babies, infants. It just seems brutal. So what do they do? Verse four. Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. He said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So you need to understand that the Kenites were living kind of among the Amalekites in the same region down in the Negev, the southern region of Israel. The Kenites, there was a particular Kenite you would be familiar with. He was the father-in-law of Moses named Jethro. Jethro was a Kenite. The Kenite clan comes of Jethro. So there was an affinity between Israel and the Kenites, and so Saul says, Kenites, get out because we're about to destroy the Amalekites. But they were both um, nomadic tribes that lived down in the desert region. And so Saul comes down and he says, you guys need to move along. And it tells us in verse seven, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agog, the king of the Amalekites alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, well, that they utterly destroyed. He keeps the commandment that benefits him. But the part that doesn't, the part that that would be considered a loss, he, he doesn't go for that at all. All right, let's deal with this. Utterly destroy infants every living thing belonging to the Amalekites, it seems so extreme. The phrase utterly destroyed, you've heard before in in our studies, if you've gone through Torah with it, it's harem, or harem, and it literally means to put under the ban. Put everything under the ban. Put everything under the ban. This is the exact same rule, by the way, that a man named Achan, Achan, violated at Jericho. God said, "Take it should be harem. Everything is under the ban. You touch nothing in Jericho. You just wipe out Jericho. That's the command. But Achan goes in there and says, hey, this is a lovely uh, shield and some coins here. And he takes it and buries it under his tent. Big problem for Achan. That story's in Joshua five through seven. Now, critics will look at this and they will point to Jericho. They will point to God's command of the utter extermination of the Amalekites. They'll point to the flood, and they'll say, this is why I reject the Old Testament God. I reject him, because he is merciless, and he is harsh, and he is a killer, and he is bloodthirsty. I just don't understand that kind of slaughter. Well, let me ask you tonight, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you understand that kind of slaughter? I mean, this is not easy for any of us to take. Our compassionate, gracious, merciful God, and yet he says, wipe them out. Well, let's understand something. First of all, you don't have to understand because you're not God. As a matter of fact, I really don't even need to make a defense here, because you're not God, and I'm not God, and he is. So that that should end the conversation right there. But it's not going to, because hey, it's us. We're gonna go a little further. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four says, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Translation. He does nothing wrong. Every judgment of his, perfect. So you gotta filter that through this whole Amalekite thing. Psalm 19 verse nine, the judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. Revelation 15, verse three says, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, which by the way, that includes us. We're gonna be singing this exact song. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous, and true are your ways, King of nations. You're gonna sing that around the throne because at that moment, at that point, there will not be any more questions about righteousness and justice. You will know that you know And so you've already been quoted in answering your own question if if you struggle with this. Revelation 16, verse seven, I find this fascinating. I heard the altar in heaven saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So I suggest when we come to something difficult, like a call for the annihilation of a people group, genocide by our translation, when we see God calling for this, I suggest you start right here that everything he does is righteous and true. You might still not understand why he does it, but you know, it must be right. You gotta start there. We either accept this truth or we don't. And if you don't, you will never be able to accept or know God. He has to be God. So starting there, listen to me, questioning God and questioning his word, the Bible, to learn, to understand, to draw near to him is wonderful, and he invites it. Ask all the questions you want. That's how we grow in faith. That's how our spiritual man, our spiritual woman, becomes more spiritual, we ask. That is, that, I have so much fun in study. I've told you before, the staff has gotta think I'm weird because I'm in my office talking to myself. Well, I'm not talking to myself. I'm talking to the Lord and I'm going, Lord, why? I don't understand this at all. You're gonna have to explain this to me because I gotta go explain it to them tomorrow night. <laughs> and I've told you many times, I'm like maybe half a day ahead of where we are right now. I mean, I'm just barely figuring this out as we go forward. And I do my best figuring when I stop trying and I, and I just ask the Lord, could you explain this? Help me understand this, that's good, that is great. Ask the questions. Feel free to say, God, I don't get this at all. But in the context, knowing he's gotta be right, so something's missing here. (laughs) And sure would say, oh, something's missing. But something's not, I, I don't understand, but I want to understand because I love you and I wanna know you, that's great. But questioning God out of doubt or fear or anger or a desire to prove that you know better than him, that's the soul man. And that's dangerous territory because that kind of thinking will lead you right into the flesh. Now, I'm not saying that we lockstep in blind faith. In fact, I don't believe there is such a thing as blind faith, blind trust. Where the Lord is concerned, we trust the God who we know to be true and to be trustworthy. But we don't just kind of blindly follow after. No, I'm saying what we need to do is we need to check our hearts as we learn of his heart. And just be sure that, If your desire is to know him, ask away. If your desire is to disprove him, you're already in trouble. And that is, again, the soul man. Now, back to the Amalekites. So let's think this through a little bit more. Do a little background check. We do background checks for everybody who serves in our student student and children's ministry. Gotta do a background check. So let's background check the Amalekites and see what comes back. Amalek was grandson of Esau, one of his grandsons, uh, his people, the Amalekites, then settled, as I said, in the Negev, that southern desert region, region of Israel. The Armana tablets of Egypt have something to say about the Amalekites. It describes them with one word they were plunderers. The Amalekites were known in the ancient world as plunderers, but it's more than that. Other historical documents indicate they were ruthless, brutal attackers of the weak, specifically. They would go after those they knew they could just wipe out. They sacrificed babies in, in Baal worship. So they already were sacrificing their own babies to their own false gods. This was very much their practice. Before Israel even reached Mount Sinai, you can read this in Exodus 17, they began picking off the tail end of the company, which included the elderly and the infirm and children and those who were weak. The Amalekites were attacking at the back to take out who they could. This resulted in the Battle of Rephidim, Exodus 17, that Joshua won. Remember, as Moses stood up on the hillside and he held up his hands, and when his hands were up, they won, and when his hands went down, they started to lose because hands up is a spiritual thing. And so they fought, and they, Joshua destroyed, at that point, that band of Amalekites. There were other bands around. And then now, 440 years before Samuel and Saul The Lord warned of the extermination and the extinction of all things Amalekite. So as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and suddenly it's brought up here 440 years later, you gotta ask the question, why did God wait? Why not just wipe them out when they came into the land? I think you know the answer if you know the nature of God. Grace, grace, grace. We say it's so unfair that he wipes out the Amalekites. He said he was gonna do it, and then he waited 440 years before he exacted that punishment. Let me draw a bigger parallel for you. In the seventh generation from Adam, God said, I am going to come and judge this world. That was over 6,000 years ago. Why has he waited? Grace, mercy, patience. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The soulish man and the carnal man have to repent, turning to the Lord to become the spiritual person. And had the Amalekites repented, I guarantee you, because I know the Lord, they would have been saved. Had they repented, they had 440 years to do it. But, by God's own prophetic word, he knew they would never repent. Yeah, but but the babies and the infants, he knew that these babies and infants would not repent either. This is the one thing, God knows what we don't know. God is not limited by time. God sees it all, he understands it all, and he knows the heart. So he knows what a people will do. And even knowing, this is what's amazing about grace, even knowing that they were unsalvageable as a people, he waited 440 years to bring this punishment. That's grace. That is patient grace. But Saul, by his own wisdom, only wiped out what he thought was not worth keeping. Just wipe out the worthless. Keep the good stuff. And don't wipe out their king. He spares their king, their king, whose name is Agog, Agog. Agog means I will overtop, I will overthrow, I will succeed, and we think that Agog wasn't even necessarily a name as much as a title, he was Agog of the Amalekites, he was like their overthrower, their king ruler. Agog, I will overtop, my friends, that is the desire of the flesh. The flesh wants to overthrow. The flesh wants to take over the soul and subdue the spirit. Agog and Amalek throughout the Bible are types of the body. They are types of the flesh. And what we see here is is the soul man, Saul, he is inviting the influence of the flesh over the spirit, keeping this king alive. He wouldn't even put him under Agog order. Had to work that one in. But he's inviting this, this king to stay alive. And my friends, when the soul invites the flesh to live, the flesh will win. And, and this is part of the example, part of why the story is even here. The soul man can't see his future, can't see what inviting the flesh ultimately will do. What's gonna happen because of Paul or Saul, sorry, of Saul allowing Agag to live. 1 Samuel chapter 30, a whole band of Amalekites are gonna raid and burn down a town called Ziklag. Ziklag at that time was a town belonging to David and his mighty men and all of their families. And while David is off on a raid against the Philistines, this group of Amalekites who survived Saul's work burned down the entire town. In 2 Samuel chapter one, we're gonna find out that the person who brings the final fatal blow to Saul himself is an Amalekite. So Saul is signing his own death warrant. But Saul's lack of obedience, not only will it be the death of him, not only is it gonna cause more pain and problems and destruction for Israel, but 600 years after this, a political hack is gonna come on the scene in Persia and try to eliminate all the Jews. His name is Haman, Haman, the Agagite. He is offspring of Agag. He is offering either of this king or of another king by that same name over the Amalekites because Saul allows, and by the way, not just this king. It's, it's evident that he allowed certain Amalekites that he thought were worthy to live. And they will turn around and continue to be a pain to Israel. My friends, look at it this way. If you don't kill the flesh, the flesh will kill you. And that's the the issue here. Galatians chapter six, verse eight, for the one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Spiritual man, fleshly man, spiritual woman, carnal woman. What are you sowing to? That is, what are, you, what are you investing in? Are you investing in the things of this world, the things of the flesh, carnal things, or are you investing in the spirit? As we invest in the spirit, remember the spirit is life and peace, the flesh is death. So the, the contrast is, is so clear. Why does Saul, by the way, spare Agag, this king of the Amalekites, he's a trophy. And the soul man wants a trophy. The soul man wants to say, see, see what I did? See who I've got now serving me? See what I, what I accomplished here? It's a symbol of one king's power over another. This is what the kings of, of the nations would do. Keep the king alive and make him serve in your court. Now you've got proof that you are greater than they are. And this reveals this deep character flaw that is in Saul, developed in an insecure Saul. That character flaw that we talked a bit about this Sunday turns into full-blown pride. Pride. Pride needs to be puffed up. Pride needs to be supported. So keep Agog alive, and it supports Saul's pride. Soulish pride always thinks it can control the flesh. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, however, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Well, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all Night, My friends, that is the heart of intercession in the spiritual man, the spiritual woman. Samuel really likes Saul, really cares for Saul, has compassion for Saul. And so when the Lord says, I regret this, I regret having even made him king at all, Samuel's response is to spend the night in weeping intercession, Verse 12, Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel. By the way, those of you who have been there, it's not Mount Carmel. This is a different Carmel. This is down, uh, down in the Negev, okay, down in the southern Israel region. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Soul man. And then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. So verses 10 and 11, we see the heart of intercession in the spiritual man. In verse 12, we see the soul man and his arrogance and pride. I want a battle. Build a monument to me. Little Saul statue there in Carmel. Arrogance and pride. These are the, 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 the pieces of evidence throughout Saul's life that we start to pull out and go, okay, there's a, oh, that's a soul man, soul man, soul man. And the soul man wants his pride borne up. Remember again, Sunday we talked about, there is one way to break pride, and it is a humble spirit. And the singular monument of greatest humility is the cross. The cross breaks pride. Well, verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. No, he hadn't. No, he hadn't. Liar. Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, oh, they they brought them out from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. I mean we mostly carried out the command. Man, that's a problem. That is a soul man issue. I did most of it. Spiritual life is not horseshoes and hand grenades, you know? It's not get as close as you can. Spiritual life is perfect. Absolute righteousness. Christ likeness. It's not, well, I, you know, I got halfway there. I did most of the stuff I was supposed to. If you don't do it all, you don't get there, which is why we need grace, by the way. I'm getting ahead of myself, but don't freak out. I gotta do more than the best I can do? Yeah, it's called grace, because you at your best won't get there. But he's saying, we, we mostly did this, we mostly carried it out, the rest we have put under the ban, utterly destroyed. In this moment, we see Saul speaking with Samuel, and he gives three soulish responses. Number one, make excuses. First thing he does is he starts making excuses. Well, we did most of it, and besides, these were, these were good sheep and oxen. And, and here's another one. Don't just make excuses, blame others. Blame others. Verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. No, he didn't. He didn't. I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. Okay, then you didn't obey the mission of the Lord. And have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. No, he didn't. But the people took some of the spoil. Oh, no, it's their fault. They're the ones, Lord. So now he's making excuses and he's blaming others. I obey, but, but the people. The people, Lord. And then... Third thing the soul person does, make excuses, blame others, and get religious. Get religious. They, they, they took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choicest, choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Excuses, excuses, excuses. By the way, notice that the soul man is still saying, the Lord your God. He can't say, the Lord my God. If this is Samuel's God, we're gonna appease Samuel's God. That is pagan thinking. That is soul level thinking. I'll do what I gotta do to appease God. I'll go to church because it appeases God. I'll give, you know, a few bucks a week because it appeases God. I'll own a Bible, I'm not gonna read it, but I'll own one because that'll appease God. And that's how the world thinks that is soul man thinking. Saul is making excuses, blaming others. He's getting all religious. Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And then he says this famous, famous verse. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And this is is a continuance throughout the scriptures. The Lord is even gonna say in Isaiah, I hate your sacrifices and your new moon festivals. I'm sick to death of all of these these feasts that you're keeping as if that's what mattered. That is not what mattered. How about justice? How about caring for the poor? The Lord takes such a different approach, a spiritual approach, which is relational, which cares for others, and which cares about us actually listening to him. By the way, note this. To obey is better than sacrifice. The word obey is Shema. To Shema. To hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What? Heart, soul, might. Spirit, soul, body. In other words, you shall love the Lord your God with all that you are with all that you are. That means with my body, I'm gonna put my body to work loving God. Not, not proving myself righteous to get my salvation, but responding to my salvation, I'm gonna put this body to work to serve him. And so I'm gonna think about him. I'm gonna pour over his word and study him and seek to understand him. And spirit, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna listen to him. And when I'm confused, I'm gonna go to him. Hear, O Israel, Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Samuel says, it's better to heed than the fat of rams. The word heed, haksib, means listen attentively for instruction. So it's it's very much a a synonymous word with shema. Shema, haksib, hear with intent to do, listen attentively to God's instruction. But soulish Saul isn't doing either one. He won't do either one. By the way, in applying this Shema, this Hakseb, this obedience and heeding, once again we can see Jesus is the ideal. He is the ideal spiritual man who both hears and he heeds. Listen to this, Psalm 40, verse 6 sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written in my heart. Who's talking? It's a Sunday school answer. Jesus. And we know this because the Hebrew pastor writes in Hebrews chapter 10, verse seven, he quotes that exact same passage, Psalm 40, verses six through eight, he quotes it. He says, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and burnt offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Wait, that's different. We've talked about this before, that in the psalm, it says, my ears you have opened. In the Hebrew pastor's writing, it says, a body you have prepared. Those are two seemingly very different things unless you are thinking like a creator. To say my ears you have opened is to say you created me. This is a Hebrew euphemism. You created my ears, opened them to hear. You gave me life. That, that's what my ears you have opened means. And so when it's written, a body you have prepared for me by the Hebrew pastor, it's the same idea. The Hebrew pastor, by the way, is is probably quoting the uh, uh, Septuagint. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Psalm 40, verses six through eight, that's the Hebrew translation that we have. So we have the Hebrew translation and the Greek translation. But again, saying the same thing, a body you have prepared for me, my ears you have opened, Think about a baby in the womb and God knitting that baby together and opening the ears to hear. That's the idea. And Jesus speaking says, you've done this to me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Jesus said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. The perfect spiritual man. That's Jesus. Jesus. And by the way, when he says, I have come to do your will. Listen, obedience gets things in right alignment, spirit, soul, and body. If you feel all out of whack, like, man, I have really been feeding the flesh. Man, I have not been spiritual lately. You wanna get things back in right alignment? Start obeying the Lord. Shema, hear, love the Lord with heart, mind, and body. Give him all that you are. Do what he asks you to do, and you will find yourself starting to realign. This is another great reason for keeping the commandments of God. I've said this over and over. Keeping the commandments will not save you, but it certainly will realign you. It will work toward your sanctification. It, it will make you a more spiritual man, more spiritual woman, because the commandments of God, the Bible says, are pure. Pure. They're right, they're good. God isn't looking for pagan sacrificial appeasement. Saul thinks he is. The soul man says, well, we've got sacrifices. Yeah, well, we didn't destroy everything, but we brought this stuff to give to it. that's religion. And religion is, is a very soulish exercise, but Jesus says in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Love first. Love compels the keeping of the word. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And if that doesn't get things in right alignment, I don't know what will. Spirit, soul, and body. Verse 23, Samuel continues, for rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is so serious that Samuel actually says to rebel is in the same category as witchcraft. He says insubordination, which is doing what you want to do, not doing what God has asked you to do, it's acting in the soul rather than the spirit, insubordination is akin to idolatry. Why? Because insubordination and idolatry and witchcraft and rebellion, they all appeal to the same cold heart. They're all soulish and fleshly. Saul knew, by the way, he knew what the Lord had commanded. It, It was not unclear what God was asking when it came to the destruction of the Amalekites. He knew that, but the soul man always thinks he knows better. Is that ever you? You know the Lord is leading you in a direction, but your way looks a little better. So I'm gonna do my way. First, I'll, I'll say, you know, if that did not work out, I'll check back with you, Jesus. I know better. I know what's right for me. The soul man always thinks he knows better. The soul man couches and defends his actions with religion. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I wanna do, but I'll do it in a religious way. Listen, we know what God's commanded. You know, even, even the unspiritual has a sense. God put conscience in every one of us. Believer and non-believer alike has conscience. We have a, a, a sense of right and wrong. God put that there. But especially when you give your life to Jesus, you know what he has commanded. But knowing in the head and doing religion isn't enough. Hearing and heeding in the spirit. You know what that does to you? Not only does it align you, it also brings what Jesus would call joy. What I would call the joy of obedience. There, there's joy in obedience. We laugh about this, but being a true, completely sold out follower of Jesus Christ is not a bummer. You know the old, I'm going to church, I'm going to love God whether it kills me or not. <laughs> and by his word, I'm going to keep things right. No happiness in my life. That's the stuff of frivolity. You know, I mean, it's just, come on. The most spiritual people I know are the most fun to be around. Seriously, I, I would much rather be around someone sold out to the Holy Spirit than someone who's not. Because the spiritual person knows how to have fun and knows what real joy is. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you're gonna abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, John 15, verse 10. And then he says this, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. How do you get full of joy? You get the joy of Jesus. Well, I thought he was a man of sorrows. Yeah, because we're so bummed out all the time. He, he's a man of sorrows because he's heartbroken over the state of humanity and the world and the fact that we are a joyless people without the spirit. But man, follow after Jesus, start to see how he, how he rolls, what he does. Obey him, you're gonna know the joy of that obedience. I'm gonna give you an example and, and permit me just for a moment to be foolish with this. Cheryl and I had to obey the Lord to go through the process of adoption twice. That, that, it, it was, it was an act of obedience. I know that because I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I cannot even tell you how much joy is in our house because of those four knuckleheads. I love them. They are an absolute blast. We have a joy at this point in our lives we would not have had because we obeyed. And I'm not saying we obey like, oh, look at this great thing we did. In fact, you know what was really funny? People used to say this. Well, none of you, because you're all used to it by now. But, but people used to like, stop us in the store and go, did you adopt those children? Yeah, we did. Oh, God bless you. <laughs> and <I> know, <laughs> And Cheryl's laughing because we'd walk away going, they have no idea. We are the blessed ones. We already are blessed. These kids are amazing, this is is the joy of obedience. Just do what the Lord tells you to do, you're gonna have his joy. That's the promise of Jesus. Spirit, soul, and body, to be joyful. Samuel is, he's so distressed with Saul's insubordination, his rebellion. And then Saul said to Samuel, verse 24, just check this out, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He's still blaming the people. By the way, he is recognizing that he sinned, but he is not repenting. And there is a difference. There is a difference. And I'll prove it to you in a couple of verses here. But he says, you know what? Here's the deal. I, you know, it, it was the people. They all wanted this. How could I say no? No. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death, Proverbs 14, 27. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. That is such a contrast. The soulish man fears people. The spiritual man fears the Lord. The spiritual woman is far more concerned about what the Lord thinks and wants than she is about what people think or want. And if we fear people in the soul, it's gonna kill us. Fear the Lord, and he will exalt you at the proper time. Saul feared the people. Again, soul man, that's what the soul man does. Another soul man did the same thing. His name was Pontius Pilate. People were getting all uppity. So he says, I wash my hands of this situation, and because he feared the people, Pilate handed over Jesus to shame, ridicule, and death. Do we ever do that? Do we ever hand Jesus over to shame because we fear to even speak his name or to stand for him and what he declares righteous and true in this world? Verse 25. Now, therefore, Saul, still speaking, please pardon my sin and return with me. He's not asking the Lord for a pardon. He's asking Samuel, pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, in this moment, you might think, oh, good. Maybe, maybe the heart's turning a little bit here in Saul. Maybe he's repentant. Nope, nope. He is still afraid of how this is gonna look. What he wants is Samuel to come back with him and worship with him at Gilgal because it will make him look good. It will save face. That is Saul's concern. I need good PR. Okay, I did wrong, So, but, but, but come on back and, and, and I'll worship the Lord. Verse 26, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. I love Samuel because he is not so quick to just turn around and say, okay, well, it's good. We're all good, we're fine. No big deal, let it go, no. It's not that Samuel doesn't wanna forgive Saul, he does. But Samuel recognizes the severity of this situation and Saul doesn't. Saul doesn't get it, not yet, not yet. As Samuel turned to go, verse 27, Saul seized the the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, that would be David, who is better than you. By the way, David's a sinful man. You're gonna see that. He's gonna make some major blunders, major errors, and some very serious sins but he will repent, and he does turn to the Lord, and he does care what the Lord thinks of him. But verse 29, Samuel says, also the glory of Israel. So he's tearing the kingdom from you, Saul. This is a done deal. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. I love this. The glory of Israel is what Samuel calls God. The glory, the netzach, You could translate that, the strength of Israel, the endurance of Israel. I love that because God, not a man, not a king, but God is the enduring, bright strength of Israel. He was then, and he still is today. There is one reason, and one reason alone, that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, exist in the world today, and it is God is their strength. God is their endurance. Now Rick, I I heard you say recently that in the the state of Israel, what like 80, 85% of the Jewish people there are secular. Yeah, and God is still their endurance. He still has a plan. This is part of his choosing a people group to work through and with and bring his Messiah into the world through. He chose them, he is still working and he has a plan that's gonna unfold for us and it's gonna blow our minds. Read about it in, in Romans chapter 11. God is the endurance of Israel. Psalm 29, 11 says, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And Romans eleven twenty six, 26, so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Why is he gonna do that? Because at that point, All Israel, who I would call the remnant of Israel, surviving at the end, will come to faith in Jesus. That's the only way you can be saved, by the way. Jew or Gentile, the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. Well, verse 30, then he said, well, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. And here's the proof in the pudding. This is confession without repentance. This is okay, okay, all right, I sinned. Can we just go back to normal? Can we just forget this ever happened? Come back with me and and let's worship. Saul, until you repent, how dare you just stand up like you're gonna worship like everything's good between you and God? You just violated his command. But we don't want to deal with sin. We're afraid to deal with the exposure of repentance. Oh no, Saul is thinking, as king, I can't let all the people know that I did wrong here. He obviously is concerned, again, with saving face. My friends, without repentance in the heart, nothing changes. We want things to go back to normal as soon as possible, but unless there's repentance, nothing changes. Verse 31 So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord, played church really. Now I know as I read this, I probably sound a little judgy when it comes to Saul. But the context of this story, his behavior, the way he's living his life and the way he will continue is absolutely revealing. If he was truly repentant, God can work with a repentant king Again, consider David. David is going to do the most heinous thing possible. He's going to have an adulterous affair. He's going to lie about it. He's going to have the husband murdered so that he can marry the woman and not say anything and cover it up. And he repents. By the way, he doesn't repent on his own, he repents when he's discovered the Lord's gonna send Natan, the prophet, to him. And when, when David hears from Natan and realizes what he's done and realizes the Lord knows what he's done and it's out there, David immediately falls on his face and repents. Read it in Psalm 51. God can work with a repentant heart. Saul is not repentant. And that's why the kingdom is gonna be torn from him completely. You might ask with verse 31, well then so why does Samuel go back following after him. Well, notice he's not walking beside him and he's certainly not leading him, but he goes back with Saul. Why? Part of the reason is he's compassionate. He really does care about Saul. The human heart of Samuel is just going, man, is there anything that can be done here? But there's something else. There's a reason, another reason that Samuel goes back with Saul. See, he's heartbroken, but he's also angry. Brace yourselves, verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Now, the phrase cheerfully, it's difficult to translate because it can mean in bonds. He came to him in bonds. It can also mean um, relieved, you know, like you're not in bonds, but you're you're bonded to a sense of relief. And I don't know how else to, to say it to you, but, but in the context, he came to him in this cheerfully, and Agog said, surely the bitterness of death is past. So the translators translate cheerfully because they think, okay, then what, what it's saying here is that as he's being brought out, he's thinking, I'm good to go. I'm gonna get off scot-free. Everything's fine. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agog to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. I have that underlined in red in my Bible. He hewed him to pieces. Now, someone reading, perhaps if you have an NIV translation, you're like, oh, it just says he killed him here. I think you're going too far, Rick. No, the NIV doesn't go far enough because it doesn't want to offend. The Hebrew is. Absolutely clear, Samuel hacked him to bits. I mean, took him apart. This is a graphic, bloody, violent scene. You need to see it as that, and nothing less than absolute. it's just unbelievable, shocking. Samuel's supposed to be a prophet, not an executioner. And even an executioner, you think, okay, lop off his head and be done with it, but he hacks him to bloody bits. Why is the Hebrew language here so R-rated? Why is it so explicit and violent? And I think it's to leave an impression. In fact, this whole chapter, I think God is allowing the serious nature of it to get our attention and to understand how depraved, first of all, how depraved Agag and the Amalekites are or were and how serious a thing it is for us to entertain wickedness and the vile enemies of God. This is a murderous, sick pagan, and Saul says, keep him alive and put him in my court. That'll be good. Is that ever a good idea? Keep the flesh alive? No, kill the flesh dead. That's what the scriptures teach. And we read this and we think, wow, that's just so brutal. Have we become this jaded? to the deadly nature of sin in our world? Have we become so comfortable with sin, and agog is the picture of sin here, that when we see sin taken apart bit by bloody bit, that we go, oh, no, maybe we shouldn't go that far. Maybe we shouldn't you know, cut off all the streaming services. Maybe we, we shouldn't get rid of all the, the DVDs and, and, and Blu-rays in our houses that, that have questionable content. Maybe we, Maybe we should just kind of skip over those parts in the book that are offensive. I, you know, I mean, I'm, th- these are actually cheap shots because there are a whole lot more serious things in our culture than that. Maybe we just pretend like it's not a problem. Sin is death. The Bible says in Romans one thirty two, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Why? Because we're so jaded. Samuel is not jaded to sin. He sees sin as it is, is, and he treats it as it ought to be treated, and he hacks Agag to bits. He fulfills, by the way, in doing this, the very just and righteous word of God. This is done. Shouldn't we have the same attitude? Now, Now, please don't misunderstand me here. Don't go get an ax and go crazy on me. Shouldn't we have the same attitude to hack sin dead out of our lives? Our own sinful behavior, our sinful thoughts, don't get militant, you know, I'm not talking about you know the sin of others, I'm talking about your sin, my sin. Shouldn't we recognize it is so vile? And what the Bible says, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. This is the payment you get for sin. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Samuel hewed agog to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. And then Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. This is tragic, but listen, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. And Saul, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Chapter ends in a very sad place. The Lord regretted that he had even made Saul king. Now, now here's, here's the final conundrum. The word regretted is nacham. We've already seen the word twice before in this passage, in this chapter. Nacham, which translates here the Lord regretted It means to feel sorry or to repent. Let's read it that way. The Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Same word, repent, regret, same word. Does the Lord have regrets? Well, it says he does right here. (laughs) The Lord regretted, so apparently the Lord can regret a decision that he's made. If you look back at verse 11, he says, I regret, same word, naham, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And if you skip down then to verse 29, here's the conundrum. Verse 29, Samuel says, also the glory of Israel will not lie or naham. Change his mind. For he is not a man that he should naham. Says it twice. God doesn't naham. But in verse 11, he says, I Naham," and in verse 35, the Lord Nahamed. And Samuel says he doesn't do that. Okay, how do we make that right? The critic points to this and says, see, there's the problem with the Bible. It says he doesn't, and, and, there, and then we see him doing it. So can God have regrets? Absolutely. So how do we understand this? Especially if he has regrets, we see that he has regrets, but then it says he doesn't have regrets. He has naham, but he doesn't have naham. Okay, first of all, understand this. Stay with me here. We're almost done. First of all, God is not capricious. That is, he doesn't play us. You know, he doesn't, he's not like changing with the times. He's consistent. He is absolutely righteous and true. He does not change. When he says, I regret that I have done this. Though the word nacham can mean repent, it also means regret. God is not repenting as if it was sinful or wrong to make Saul king. He just regrets that he did. Doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do. The verb nacham is actually used 29 times in the Old Testament connected to God feeling remorse. It's always an emotional element with the Lord, always associated with feeling, that is with sorrow, regret, or being moved to pity, Naham, Genesis chapter six, verse six, the Lord was Naham, he was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, and the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Was he wrong to make them? No, no. But he was sorry for how things were turning out. Didn't he know how things would turn out? Yeah, yeah. But I've said this a lot recently. He is not a cold, unfeeling God. He feels what happens. In a way that we can't even possibly understand. In fact, sometimes we, I use the word anthropomorphize God. We, we, we term him with, with human terminology I don't think saying that God feels like we feel goes even close to far enough here. When I feel strongly about something, I don't have a clue how the eternal God feels about something. When I am sorrowful over a loss of a life or a loss of someone in in terms of um, rejecting God, I'm sorrowful, I have no idea what it means to feel that eternally. It's way beyond us. Deuteronomy 32, 36. The Lord will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on his servants. Naham, same word there. When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, he's gonna have compassion, so he's gonna gonna turn. He's not repenting, but he is gonna turn for them on their behalf. Let me me ask it to you this way. Um, Ever made a decision? that you knew this is the right thing to do, but you hated making that decision. But you knew it was right. I have to do that, I have no choice, tr- I have to do this, this is the right thing, but in so doing, oh Lord, I don't wanna do this. That's Naham. as applied to the Lord. And understand that we can like, Feeling regret over a correct action is not the same thing as repenting for a sinful action. And, and that's the difference in the way the word is used. It can be used for repenting for sin, but it's also used as regret for doing something that though it is right, is painful to do. I regret having made Saul king over Israel. It was the right thing, but it was a painful thing. And, and God is watching it play out and it pains us. God. Davis puts it this way. This is so good. He says, verses 11 and 35, do not intend to suggest Yahweh's fickleness of purpose, but his sorrow over sin. It does not depict Yahweh flustered over a lack of foresight, but Yahweh grieved over a lack of obedience. We need to know that the God of the Bible is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. By the way, Samuel, it says, did not see Saul again. Do you know what that means? It means the soul man is now completely cut off from access to the spirit. The prophet will no longer speak with him or go to him or advise him. Why? Saul doesn't need him. I got it from here. He's the soul man. He is so much the soul man, not listening to God, and Saul will not listen anymore to the point that Saul is actually gonna go see a witch. A witch. Remember what Samuel said back in verse 23? Rebellion is as the the sin of divination or witchcraft. That's right where the soul man is headed. The danger of the soul man, with no regard for trust in the spirit of God, is that he will always end up serving the flesh. And that's where we're gonna see Saul go, not tonight, but in future studies. Let me end with this. The Bible is interesting in this. Fascinating to me, actually, that it gives us two Saul's. I kept tripping over the other one earlier on. Two Saul's. Both Saul's are of the tribe Benjamin. Both Saul's are called. Both Saul's are anointed. Both are given the choice to obey God in the spiritual man or the self in the soul man. The first Saul chooses the soul man The second Saul, well, a hyper-religious man, he spent most of his young adult life kicking against the goads, pushing back against all efforts of God to rein him in and turn him around until he finally comes face to face with the Lord. And then he changes his name, right, from Saul to Paul, which is a fascinating change because Saul means desired. That's the soul man. Paul means little small. That is the spiritual man. Because the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, is humble because they see themselves in stature in terms of the greatest spiritual man himself, Jesus Christ. And in comparison to the spiritual man, Jesus, I'm just a little spiritual man. (laughs) In fact, you know, Christian means little Christ. I'm a little Christ follower. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just one of the multitude. But, but, I'm one of the multitude. I'm one of his. And so we see this, this change happen in the life of Saul who becomes Paul, and what a change. Anybody, if, if anyone after Jesus is a great picture of the spiritual man, it's Paul. And he knows how to term it. And we see in his life how the spirit took charge of his soul and body to the point that Paul says, final passage here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse seven. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age, soul men. They're soulish. They don't get it. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them, how, Paul? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And then Paul says, but we received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Natural man, the soul man, does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised or valued. But he who is is spiritual, he values, he judges all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I started out saying this is not so difficult. If you're struggling with your spiritual nature, pray. Talk to him. Ask him to show you the spirit life to show you how to live in the spirit. Be in his word. Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Give yourself over to the Lord. Let him be the focus of your life. Simple, it's not hard. The soul man, the soul woman's gonna try and work it out, figure it out. While the spiritual man understands things, the soul man never will because he's taught by the Lord. Which are you gonna be? I mean, the choice is each one of ours. We can be like Saul, the soul man, or we can be like Paul, the spiritual man, or better still, like Jesus. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that is our prayer. Spirit, soul, and body, that the complete self will be blameless before you. Blameless, Lord Jesus, because you are blameless. Blameless because we've been washed in your blood. Blameless, Lord Jesus, because we have trusted in you and you go before us. You defend us. You stand for us. And you have called us so simply to trust you. So, Lord, we do. I do. Not a perfect man. Pretty little by comparison. But Lord, I trust you. May we all learn to trust you and hear you and love you, spirit, soul, and body. In Jesus' name, amen.